Linguistics, a fascinating topic and one that underpins natural language processing and conversational business. Today, we're excited to welcome Tyler Sneblin to the program. Not only does he have a great pedigree with his linguistics PhD from Stanford and being the founder of a startup that was focused on getting insights from unstructured data, Tyler really knows how to boil complex things down into simple thoughts. It's why he's been referenced in Wired and Time Magazine, and he talks a lot about the social aspects of language. Stay tuned. You won't want to miss this episode. I'm John Pryle, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. Although I've already given quite the introduction, why don't you tell us who you are and what you're currently doing? I'm Tyler Sneblin, and I'm Principal Product Manager at Integrate.ai. Tyler, would you mind, as we start this podcast, just giving us a short summary of how linguistics has evolved and where we are today in this age of data? The history of linguistics, I think you can maybe, let's call it three phases, right? We've got one, you've got these people sort of digging in and figuring out, oh, there's this proto-Indo-European thing. Look at all these languages that are far flung are related to each other and figuring out how they can show that. And then you've got people like Sapir in America saying, hey, we need to document all of these native languages. And then you get Noam Chomsky comes around and says, you know what? Language is the key to understanding the brain. And this electrifies a whole bunch of fields. And that's where really a lot of the linguistics departments come from is this idea of, oh, it's not merely culture and it's not merely history. There's also this cognitive aspect. And so I think that one of the things that's really revolutionized the field is the greater focus on empirical work. So not just sitting in an armchair and saying, I know English and that's a language. And so I can just come up with what you can and cannot say in English and that'll give me rules of like the brain. So people no longer take that, I think, as seriously as they they once did. And they want to instead go out and test things on corpora of vast amounts of text uh, and speech, or they want to go out and talk to people about these things, or they want to run lab experiments. And so those are ways of really grounding what we say about language, the structure of language, how we get across anything to each other, and how these symbols move across people and time. That's, I think, something that's really taken off as we've gotten more computational sophistication and, frankly, capabilities. We're going to get into AI and conversational business in a moment, but but before we do, I think I'd be remiss in talking to a linguist like yourself if I didn't bring up emojis. So back in 2014, Time Magazine wrote a great article about your doctorate thesis work while you were at Stanford. It was on emoticons, and now you've been studying more recently about emojis. Uh, without getting too deep into the weeds, can you compare where we are then when the article came out and where we are today? Yeah, so emoji for quite some time were a wild west, and there's still people who use them in all kinds of crazy creative ways. And that's really a lot of what they do, right? They help us express ourselves and make our sort of boring black and white letters uh, sort of come alive. And so what I think you see with most language is conventions start getting established. Uh, and some of those are very fast, and some of them are very uh, ephemeral, but I think that you see a lot more things happening where people are more likely to agree on what to do. So somewhere, there are lots of ways expressing joy, for example, but the tears of joy emoji is hugely popular. That sort of shot to the top a few years ago and it keeps being dominant. So people like that expression more so than all the other ways of showing laughter in text or in emoji. And so I think that's part of what's happening is this like conventionalization where you more people know more about it. Before it was just everyone saying, what are these things? I can't use them. That's for young people. And now everybody 
not everybody, but most people feel comfortable using them. Do you see a difference? I know at, at some point there was always a criticism, and you mentioned young people, that they're not spelling things correctly, they're, they're not using grammar correctly, but now we get to the shorthand of emoji. And to me, you know, talk about the, the tears of joy, that's a very crisp and clear way to communicate something. Do you feel like we're becoming better communicators with emojis or maybe just different type of communicators with emojis? With emoji, we're really reclaiming what it is we lost when we went to just sort of having our thumbs on a little keyboard, right? Because right now you're hearing my voice and my voice is doing all kinds of things. And if we were face to face, you'd see my facial expressions and my body language and you have all sorts of signals and that you just don't have when I give you an SMS text or tweet at you. And so we're really kind of recovering some of that signal and that ability to express ourselves, right? I also wear clothes and that conveys something about who I am. And so the emoji are giving you something like intonation patterns as well as a kind of stylistic thing. And that's very fundamental to how we create relationships with people. So we are adding more value. And there was a, a piece of yours or a national punctuation day. And you actually talked about these of periods. So you mentioned punctuating your sentence with an emoji. What about the use of periods? How different is, is that? And, and I know this came from you looking at, I don't know, as part of you looking at 150,000 of your own text messages. My head hurts just thinking about that. But a few years ago, I, I, the first time I did this, I looked on Twitter. And it was because Ben Kerr at the New Republic said, the period means you're pissed. And I thought that is fascinating and must be wrong. Uh, and then I looked at sort of what words and phrases co-occurred with people having a final period at the end of their tweets. And it was really much more along the angry, like it was in the, it looked petulant. I'm happy to say that I may be under an illusion, but I don't have a lot of anger in my text message history. So when I looked at my own text message history, what you really see is that when people use final punctuation, it's really about they're doing something serious. They're talking about their feelings or they're writing very long things and they still don't need that final period, but if they have other periods, they're going to include that. Um, or if somebody previously in the thread had used a final period, they're more likely to do that. That kind of priming is very common in language where what you do influences what I do, even in, at a very subconscious level. And I think that that is, uh, there are just times and places for these things, right? So similarly, you wouldn't uh, drop the periods in a legal contract and you wouldn't put emoji in a legal contract. That's just not a, a thing that people do. You could get to that point in the future, but you're not there now. And it's all about sort of shifts over time. So it's all about a little bit of context, a lot about conversation, conveying as much information as we can. So now we've got businesses, they're developing different types of solutions that are going to interact with consumers through chat bots. They don't have to be automated, but they could start interacting with consumers through different types of communications mechanisms. So take me through your view then of, of conversational business and how this is evolving and how language is going to support all that. Yeah. So the referential use of language, right? Where I just need to know a thing like, or tell somebody to pick up that screwdriver. So that's a perfectly important way that people use language. And you're just, you know, just the facts, man. But there's also this whole creative of a connection. And it's actually quite difficult to use language referentially without doing something about the orientation of you, the people you're speaking to, and the thing you're talking about. That sort of stance triangle is what Jack Dubois says it's called. And I think it's a very handy image, geometric image of how when we're talking, we inevitably are moving ourselves and our audiences and the things we're talking about. And we might pull us together and sort of say, Ugh, we hate that thing. Uh, or I might push you away uh, and pull something towards me. Uh, I might 
put you and, and something I don't like together and shove you away from me verbally uh, or textually. And those are all things that are happening in addition to the reference. Interesting. I, I like that we're getting to the objectives of the conversation, a simple command or complex, this triangle thing, understanding the speaker, the one you're talking to, and again, the objective. How would you apply this thinking to business? And how does the conversation start and end? And how does it all come together? So for businesses, you are constantly creating or dissolving connections. So if that's a representative of your company, that may people you know, sometimes understand this is just a person who's having a bad day and they're not a representation of this entire organization. But of course, when you have just few shallow interactions, you start taking this small thing to be representative of the whole. So with conversational AI and chatbots, you may just appreciate that this is just a, a chatbot and I'm just trying to get information out of here and I don't have any expectations. But that also means that I'm forming no relationship to this thing or this technology nor this company. And so the alternative is to say, oh, well, it would be nice to know some of the rules of dialogue. And by rules, I mean the ways people typically do stuff. So an example of that would be you don't just... When you and I are talking, usually people back channel, uh-huh, mm-hmm, or lean in, leaning in, looking away. We know where we are and that I can keep talking or that I should shut up. Uh, and I may or may not do those things. In text messages, right, you lose some of those clues. And you also don't tend to, you know, when we're done with this conversation, we will say goodbye to each other. And we won't just like hang up. Some people do, but not very many. And people talk about it and they think that's that's a weird person that just the conversation is over done. Um, and so similarly, like if you could think about a, a chat stream, it's weird if even though the thing I said is sort of conclusive, you might feel like you're leaving me hanging if you don't do something. But what do you have to say? You have nothing to say. So that's where it might be fun to just sort of put the ghost emoji or a smiley face emoji, right? That's where people use those kinds of things. They're just a way of sort of saying, ah, yes, this is part of the convention of we like each other or we're friendly with each other. So we don't just leave each other hanging, even at the end when we're all done. Interesting. Now, do you see a difference in, I'll use the word transaction, short-term transaction, you know, pick up the screwdriver or query in a response versus a company maintaining a longer relationship, a longer running dialogue that might solve a couple of transactions along the way. But more importantly, is that, is that relationship that hopefully you maintain in this conversational matter? How, how do you see that evolving? Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about has to do with context, right? It, it's crazy making if you had a, a best friend who literally never remembered anything about you from conversation to conversation, they couldn't be a best friend, right? They, uh, it's fine if they forget your birthday or that you have like, what's your youngest sister's name? They've never met her. Fine. You, they can still be a friend. But, but if they just forget everything you've talked about, especially most recently talked about, if they never make reference to your shared history, that's strange. And so that's the thing that I think a lot of, for example, chatbots and organizations, even without chatbots, struggle with is that idea of a maintenance of what is meaningful and relevant for our interaction. Uh, and do you treat me like we've never met every time we meet, even though we have met before. And that's why it's sometimes quite irritating to have to go through the same series of pressing buttons and giving information and answering security questions when you feel like, I already know this, like, why are we still doing this again? So if you feel like you're being protected, great. If you're feeling like you're repeating yourself, people don't like that. Isn't there also a risk as we become friends, 
you know, my, my bot and I become a friends and this potential sharing of information crosses that creepy line. So how do you determine uh, kind of when's the right time to maybe take that, that relationship to the next level? A lot of people have this experience where they know somebody who has a very precise memory, uh, right? So I can think of somebody from who can think of everything in high school. I can think of some people from college who remember every conversation we had in Italian class. And it is creepy to be like, why are you paying so much attention to that? And when you recognize that it's just a quality of them, it becomes more okay than when it's, oh God, are they ups- am I being stalked? Like, what's happening? But there's also a difference here, we should say, between your relationships with relative strangers and actual friends and organizations and individual humans. And so it may not be appropriate for you to really consider your bank to be your friend and for them to consider you their friend it probably will rub a number of people the wrong way because that's kind of crossing that line where you're making more assumptions about us than, than you should. So yeah, if the call agent who you just talk to a different agent every time you call and they take notes of like, Oh, you know, dog's name is Sandy. Uh, you'd be a little bit weirded out when some, the next person mentioned like how Sandy that's perfectly nice for if you're a bank teller that, you know, at your small town, you know, sees you tying up your dog and they ask you and they remember you. And then that's a personal reaction, but that's strange for a more anonymous person to do. And will you figure that context out on the fly or you do, we kind of do that in advance. So how do you know where you stand? Well, you make some assumptions based on the history of interactions with everybody else, right? So very practically speaking, you could actually notice that when I share this kind of information or try to create this kind of connection, more people stay with me or they abandon ship, right? They're creeped out. Um, People talk about this or they don't. If there's a voice signal, I can hear the tension in their voice as they're begrudgingly answering my question, not fully there or changing the subject. So you can monitor the shifts that people are making. So you are looking locally, but you are also standing back and looking at a history of all the other interactions and what that led to so that you can learn, oh, my particular populations of people that I talk to like it when I have emoji. It's It feels fun and hip and, and exciting. No, my people hate it when I include emoji. They want only standard business language. I may have some people that don't feel that way, but by and large, if I just had to make one rule, it would be be formal. So the more sophisticated thing is to notice, oh, who is this person? What kind of expectation do they have? And that brings in sort of other signals from them from your past and takes, takes advantage of the fact that we don't have to treat everybody as one thing. If you do treat everybody one way, then you probably want to do the thing that is the best for most people. But once you get to the level of sophistication, you can say, no, 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 no. I know more about you and I can treat you how you want to be treated. So when we're training the system, there's the linguistic side of of the data, uh, all this unstructured data that you mentioned. But then there's also the context, whether it's a bank or a financial institution or a customer support person. And obviously, I absolutely buy into the recommendation that we go simple and then begin to segment your population and talk to them in different manners. So what type of folks are required to really do a good job of training when do you need an expert versus maybe crowdsourcing? You had a cool piece about, you know, can people, a lot of people can tell you if there's a cat in the picture. I, I saw that, right? So that, that one's more crowdsourceable, but how, how do you see the distinction between how and when you'll, you'll train your system? 
the trickiest part about any of this is asking the right questions. And that means asking questions worth answering, right? So if you're just doing a little optimization in giant organizations, you know, 1% can actually mean a whole bunch of happier customers and more money. But in many places, well, that's just a little optimization. Shouldn't we ask a question that gets at something bigger? And then it's very hard. The, the challenge is, okay, now that I have my ballpark of where, what question I want to ask, what's the specific thing that I can do that anyone can actually give me guidance on? What am I assuming is the KPI that I should be using? Is does, That's actually usually an assumption, right? So the fact that people keep coming to my store and purchasing things, I take to be a signal that they like it. We clearly know places where people begrudgingly, recurringly buy things and they are not happy with it. And if anyone came by and had like better service or something else, they would switch. But for now they're locked in. And so in that kind of company, it's not, it would be a mistake to say, yep, they keep buying with me every week. You know, they're, they're a loyal, happy customer. No, they, they might be loyal, but it might be very begrudging. Um, so you have to interrogate whether your KPIs are telling you what you actually care about or not. And then you have to pose the question in a way that is categorizable. You gave the allusion to in image processing, for example, uh, it really is quite easy to say, is there a cat in this picture? Great, no problem. Now you start saying, okay, actually I wanna draw lines around the, the outline of the cat. And I want you to draw, not just tell me in the picture is there one or not, I want the border of it. Okay, that's laborious and like, Cats are furry, right? And so like, imagine the foot, like, do I get all the little like points of fur that stick out if it's a high res photo? Or what if I label every pixel? That takes a lot of time and patience and who wants to do that, right? You're gonna have to pay me a lot of money. So there are these questions of like, what's practical and what's meaningful? And then of course you should be asking the question of, cats are easy, but what if I'm asking about some medical thing? Well, then I need to either only ask experts or I have to break this down in a way that non-experts have any hope of knowing what to do, right? So if you can just say, well, is this pixel red or not? And you know that that indicates that it's this kind of cell, uh, great. But otherwise, uh, you've got to pose the question in a way that the people that you're gathering can answer in a meaningful way. So it's interesting, uh, for sure, version one of a successful conversational interface using AI is far different from what a version two and a version three. We've got to constantly train and learn and begin to segment your audience to be truly effective with each. You could get some basics early. Is that, is that a fair way to visualize things? I think it's, I think it's fair. I mean, you can think about, you already know from your history of interactions with your customers, if you have one, what people already care about the most. So it would seem that those would be the things you want to tackle first, right? So if you were only handling like billing questions, by having an actual person answer that, that seems like that's not really a good time. You could press some buttons and get your account status and that satisfies a lot of people. So if that's 90% of your inquiries to your call center, that would seem to be, yeah, give me a web page uh, or some other interface so that I can just take care of that and save people for what people are really good at. So what are people really good at? People are really good at creating connections. They're really good at solving harder specific problems. They're really good at being creative. Uh, and so those are, if you just need to have a mechanical kind of, I want to know this thing, there is a definitely right answer here. Well, that's the kind of thing you'd probably automate, uh, right? Because that's kind of an efficient way. And then you don't have to, you know, you, you should not be a robot in your voice probably, but you don't have to worry quite so much about understanding all of the context as, much, as long as you get that the expectation I'm setting for my V1 is that you can get this kind of information. 
And I have a fail safe, right? This is how most systems work is, oh, I have no idea what you're asking about. I better push you to a human because uh, humans have a chance. I hadn't really thought about it before, but I guess what you want to do is automate as much of the routine work as you can and invest in those who are doing that higher value work. Have I got that right? Is it that simple? So here, I mean, most of the time, there's a certain mix for a person, a worker's life where, yeah, you want some mindless stuff like that actually is it's not bad to have some mindlessness to your life. And that, by the way, is great because that can be great training and double checking data, right? Uh, valid, validation data. But people do want to generally have the time pass, not just awfully, right? And, you know, press the same button a million times. That's not really great. And so it's not so much that you're getting rid of people. It's just that you're shifting them to do what is hopefully more interesting to them and certainly more valuable. And so that's the kind of stuff where I want to engage creativity and, and yes, you're going to make things more efficient, but it's really that ability to sort of say, humans can solve problems that computers can't as easily. And so let's shift attention over there. So think about like routing problems for airlines. There are simple things, right? Like, Hey, when does my flight leave? <laughs> um, how much does an extra bag cost? That, you know, a person doesn't really need to tell you that. You can just read that or have that read to you or print out on a screen in front of you. On the other hand, uh, I suddenly have to get home. There's a there's a snowstorm. I can't make this flight. I've left Iowa and driven into Chicago despite the snowstorm, but my flights are still not are still delayed. What do I do? That is a crisis for me as a customer. And I'm panicked. I need somebody who can reassure me and be creative and like, okay, well, if we fly you down to Dallas, then you can connect over to, to this part and then over to this part, and then we can get you to Palm Springs. That is something where people are more useful for a variety of reasons. One, I'm stressed. And two, uh, it is really hard for me to type out what I want. Uh, and it's really hard for a system to figure out what they what it could do within the parameters it usually has. I can't believe I'm about to give credit to like a, the dreaded cable companies. Uh, so if I have an issue with the internet and I call the cable company and I get the automated voice response unit, they say, we're going to reset your modem. Please hang on for 30 seconds. We're going to send a signal down. Uh, and then you know, please call back. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you call back and they say, if you're calling and we just reset your modem, it's still not working, let us know. And then you push another button and then you quickly, relatively quickly get to the uh, smarter tech support person. So they sort of have it right. It seems a little awkward to me. I, I think they're matching your model of automating what makes the most sense and getting you to the, a smarter person sooner than later. I mean, they're right. If they suddenly found out that if 90% of the issues are solved by restarting the modem, my goodness, yes, they should just help you with that and they should do it for you. Um, and that's a great experience. As soon as they find out that that's not the problem, it's never the problem. People never call with that being the problem. They've already done that before. So now that only solves like 10% of the questions. Well, now you're starting to wonder, is that the right first step at all? But you can tell that because your distributions change over time. And that's also people learn, right? They learn their, the ways to weave around. And so a lot more people today are conversant with rebooting things. Uh, and that's just a learned behavior for most people. This is this piece of technology is not working. I'm going to restart it. And so you can imagine some places, a lot of the people already know that and have tried that. And it may be that the company is able to do something a little bit different than what plugging in and plugging out is doing, or that people really aren't trying that uh, because they're afraid of something. People are often scared of technology, in which case, depending on the demographics and the distributions of what's useful, you, you would change what you're first line of defenses.
You're right. And that's probably they haven't gotten to that level of sophistication and they should be. If they're getting a call from someone that they know is not tech savvy and you know, an elderly is making the phone call and they know that data, then they should quick, they should not be assuming that something's been done. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Again, once we get back again to context. So as we talk about how these systems are interacting with people, uh, how does gender matter? Or does it matter? Gender is a hugely socially structuring structuring phenomena. So saying that gender doesn't matter is clearly wrong, right? I mean, we see all sorts of ways in which it does. However, people love the narrative, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and they deploy it all over the place when they really have no business doing so. And so a lot of people look at things and try to like see what are women doing? So one of the examples is what, you know, what is the language of women? Um, and so, oh, I know they all do, they do XOs all the time. Well, yes, more women use XOs uh, than men, but it's a tiny percentage of overall of women. So it'd be a weird thing when most women don't use it to say that's a female characteristic. And in fact, you can say more specifically, the people who use XO, regardless of their gender, do a bunch of other stuff, right? They tend to talk about these kinds of pop culture figures. They tend to do that. So there's a whole cluster of things going on that it'd be better to talk about their style than their gender. However, there is an important thing about conversational agents and gender that is worth talking about, which is most of them uh, at the high level are getting branded as women, right? So you have Siri Yes, there are male Siri voices, but she is normally in the in a female voice. And you have all these personal assistants, Alexa, et cetera. When you look at amateur bots, it's really actually pretty even, right? So chatbots, digital assistants have no gender, right? There is literally no socialization of them, nor do they have a biology, like they have no gender. And you see that in amateur chatbots, a third of them are masculine names, a third of them are female names, and a third of them are ungendered. But when you go to the sort of level of like very popular digital assistants, the ones that are really getting employed uh, by millions of people, those are skewing heavily towards women. And so that's this preconceived notion that women are, that that's more in concert and that people will be more soothed by a woman talking to them. And it has certain implications that I think are problematic, right? So that even if, yes, this voice does soothe me, it adds up cumulatively to putting women in a particular position and sort of pulling men out of it. And you'll note that, you know, many of the engineers who create these systems are men and they'll find research. You can find research on gender to prove whatever you want, um, especially if you want men are from Mars, women are from Venus. There's lots of that research. But that's because people go in with preconceived notions. This matters when, in fact, there might be something else that that's just a proxy for Tyler, thank you so much for giving us the time today. What a fascinating discussion. We really appreciate you being with us. Well, thanks very much for having me. Well, well, I can't say that after talking with Tyler that I'm at a loss for words, although it's a great pun. I can say that I'll be thinking a lot more about words, about their context, and about getting user interactions right really matters. It's not just about building chatbots, but understanding the linguistics behind all this helps you interact with your customers however they want, the right way, the frictionless way. We just published our Principles of Conversational Business, as well as our CEO's Guide to Conversational Business. So if you want more on this topic, please go to georgianpartners.com, download copies for yourself. For the Impact Podcast, I'm John Pryle.